Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Our Voters Tribal episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. The polarization during the 2020 election in the US caused many pundits to ask, are American voters tribal? That is, is allegiance to political parties so strong that it is akin to membership in an ethnic group or love of a sports team? Moreover, are voters tribal in the sense that our racial and ethnic identities themselves are so strong as to motivate how we think about and participate in politics, including the parties and candidates we support? These conversations may seem new to many voters, most of whom probably don't consider themselves tribal, but may nonetheless express tribal sentiments at the ballot box. But understanding the role of identity in political life has long been a topic of study in political science. Interestingly, some of the best scholarship on this doesn't come only from the US, but rather from social scientists studying electoral politics and emerging democracies, including in Asia and Africa, where deep ethnic, racial, religious, and caste divisions often appear to stunt democratic growth. To help us understand these issues in a global context, I am joined today by a very special guest, Professor Karen Faree, a longtime friend, co-author, and mentor. Karen is a political science professor at the University of California, San Diego. She teaches and uh, she studies and teaches on democracy in Africa and with a particular focus on how ethnic and racial divisions and formal and informal institutions shape voting behavior and election outcomes. She explores these topics in her book, Framing the Race in South Africa, The Political Origins of Racial Census Elections. And she has numerous academic papers and chapters published about electoral institutions, electoral integrity, and research methodology. In addition to the substantive themes of her work, Karen is also at the vanguard of developing new methodologies for applied research in emerging democracies. That is, how does one rigorously conduct fieldwork and collect data? Hello, Karen. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, James. Listeners can find this episode and previous episodes on our anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for Neither Free Nor Fair. Please subscribe and leave a review. And if our listeners have any questions for us, they can always email us at uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. Please tell us your name and where you're from. Now, Karen, before we get started, I always like to share origin stories with the audience, with guests that I've known for many years. And I believe that now you are the guest I have known the longest who's been uh, on the podcast. So Karen, when did we meet and how do we know each other? Um, we met at UCSD. Uh, I'm not sure when, 2004 maybe, you were a prospective PhD student checking out the program and trying to decide between UCSD and UCLA. That's my earliest memory of you. Um, and then of course you came to UCSD and uh, I trained you and worked with you, and that was now a long time ago <laughs> when we were both youngsters. It was, yeah, it was spring of 2004. Was that your second year teaching? Yeah, I was brand new as an assistant professor and still trying to figure out life. So um, you were one of my first grad students. Well, if you figure it out, let me know. I, I was thinking too, um, the very first class I took what for in comparative politics you taught it's a class that I now teach and I was thinking back this was fall of 2004 I don't think I understood a single thing we covered in that class the first time I took it and yet you spoke eloquently about many many aspects of that class. I'm not sure if that's true <laughs> I just remember being like this is what comparative politics is I I just was totally I don't know it's interesting how how you kind of trip into these things 
Um, uh, political institutions. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a ringer of a class. So. I was also thinking that um, you probably don't remember this, but when I was a prospective student in visiting, it wasn't during the like the recruitment weekend. I came kind of in an off period because I was living in London at the time, but you did graciously agree to meet with me. And we had a one-on-one -on -one meeting and we actually talked about what we're gonna talk today about. You were, t you, you were talking, you know, you, grad students perspectives always ask like, oh, well, what are you working on? And, and I remember you telling me about your book and the, and the stuff in South Africa and then walking out and thinking, oh my gosh, she must think I'm such an idiot. <laughs> no, I thought you were very coy. I couldn't figure out whether you were gonna, what your, what your decision was ultimately gonna be, but um, I was very excited that you decided to join us. Well, and a big part of that decision was um, wanting to work with you and you were on my PhD committee. And um, obviously I'm, I'm very close to a lot of the research you do, but also think it's really fantastic and have, have loved being, having you as a mentor. Um, and so Karen, today I thought, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that your research is at the forefront of the study of identity and democracy really globally. Um, you've published papers on numerous countries, South Africa, Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, some of which we're gonna talk about today. But I thought it would be good if you helped us define a few terms uh, first, uh, first off. When people say that voters are tribal, what does that actually mean? And is a reference to tribe, is that passe or an incorrect reference to make? Is that politically incorrect, that verbiage? Um, I'll take the second part there first. Yeah, I think, um... Tribe is a, is a very weighted term and many people might object to it because uh, I think it brings to mind these colonial associations of, you know, European anthropologists running around Africa and, you know, categorizing people according to these European notions of tribe and so on. So um, the, the term is controversial um, although it's used pervasively in, in some countries, for example, in Kenya, people will talk about tribal politics. So it's a, it's a term that's used pervasively, but is a little bit cringy, if you know, if you know what I mean. Um, in terms of what does it mean to say voters are tribal, I think it means that voters vote with their tribe. You know, they're thinking about their tribe when they're voting, and they're trying to advance the interests of their tribe when they're voting, uh, and they vote uh, perhaps as a block with their tribe. Does that, but so what is a tribe? Does that mean their racial group, their political party, um, their yeah, religious group? Tribe. I think their tribe can mean anything. I mean, it's a group that you feel deep loyalty to and you identify with and you associate with and you feel that um, your membership in that tribe is, is deeply meaningful to you. And it, it says a lot about who you are, that you're a member of that tribe. And also there's a sense that the tribe gives back to you, that it protects you, that it looks out for you. There's sort of a, a family relationship or a familial element to tribes that your, your tribe is your ultimate family. Um, and so it, it, it provokes these sen this sense of deep loyalty um, and uh, tribe can be, uh, as you said, it could be your, your soccer team could be your tribe or your, your state could, you could be tribal about being Californian. Um, you can be tribal about an ethnic identity or racial identity or um, relevant to American politics about a partisan identi identity. And I, I think that 
you know, this, this claim that American voters are tribal uh, is really in reference to our heightened partisanship recently. Um, and that people have become very attached to these partisan identities. But Karen, hold on a second, because some of what you described are groups that a person is born into, like a racial group that they're born into or an ethnic group. But, you know, when you recruited me to UCSD, I was choosing to move to the state of California. So what, what's the difference between that with which you're born versus that which you kind of choose? And, you know, you could always make a different choice. You could move from California to Texas if you wanted to, but you can't you know, be Caucasian American and then become African American. Yeah, I mean, I think we tend to believe that tribal t is more, uh, you know, connected to those identities that you're born into that you can't change very easily because you maybe you have less choice about them. Um, although we always have choice about how we identify, we have choice about, um, you know, how strongly we indicate our membership in groups. But, but yeah, there's a sense that some identities are much harder to fake, um, that, that we'll be identified with that group, whether we want to be or not. And, and those types of identities do tend to become stronger tribal identities, which, which raises the, the issue of partisanship. You know, is partisanship something that you're born into? We know there's a strong, uh, you know, element that, people tend to be the same partisanship as their parents and that these partisan identities have become deeply enmeshed in our social networks and our, in our sense of ourselves. Um, you know, but ultimately we can choose it to be a different, to be a different partisan tribe if we want to be. And so it, it, partisanship might be a little bit different than, than some of those other identities. And yet it still seems to have a lot of power. So let's talk about race. Um, you explore race and racial voting in your book, Framing the Race in South Africa, the Political Origins of Racial Census Elections. And on previous episodes of the podcast, I've, I've referenced uh, South Africa a few times, including with our colleague, Gabrielle Lynch. Um, she, we were discussing the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but um, I haven't yet gone into kind of the racial history of South Africa, which is very distinct, um, but it also means that race is always such a fraught topic in South Africa. So can you kind of give us a little bit of the background on the history and the role of race in political life in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, race, the issue of race is, is sort of um, woven into the history of South Africa. And, and um, you know, white people have been in South Africa as, as long as they've been in, in uh, the United States, basically. Um, so there's a very long history of that, many centuries, and um, these are colonial settlers. Colonial settlers from Europe, yeah. And very early on in that settler history, uh, there was a a, a practice of uh, segregation, um, and over time, that practice of segregation became more in intense. And I'm sure most people have heard about apartheid. Apartheid was initiated in 1948. But it built on an entire history of segregation, racial segregation that, that became ever more embedded in state policies and institutions over time. So apartheid was just sort of the extreme version of what had been there all the time in South Africa. Um, and you know, the, as a result of this, these institutions and these laws and these and these policies, race came to determine just about every aspect of people's lives um, from the very intimate to the very 
political to the economic and so on. So the types of jobs that people could legally take on was determined by the ra their race, that the nature of their education was determined by their race, whether they could own land or not own land was determined by their race. And that, and that policy, by the way, predated apartheid. Um, their political rights, of course, whether they could vote um, was determined by their race, uh, their, their, just, their, their ability to pursue justice in the court of law was was strongly shaped by their race. Their very ability to move around the country was shaped by their race. So if you were uh, an African, South African in the height of apartheid, you were not uh, considered an actual citizen of South Africa. You were considered a citizen of one of the homelands of South Africa and you had to have paperwork and permission in order to move freely around the country. And then, of course, there were much more intimate intrusions, um, who you could marry, who you could have sex with, um, where you could live in a city. Everything was determined by race and it was legislated um, into, it was law. And, and, and the demographic irony of this, for lack of a better term, is that it's, it's whites segregating blacks, but whites were actually the minority. Oh, they were, yeah, they were a very small minority. Blacks were about 80% of the population. Then there were a, two additional groups designated by the state, a group um, known as the Coloreds, who were uh, a mixed race group in the Western Cape, who are a mixed race group in the Western Cape, sorry. Um, and uh, Indians who uh, are the descendants of people who arrived to work in the sugar plantations in the 19th century. So. Um, whites are actually a, a very small minority in South Africa. Um, I think I want to say eight percent or ten percent. It's a it's a relatively small fraction of the population, um, and yet they built this entire edifice of law to um, to prevent these the these the majority from from having any political power. Uh, any economic power and, and so on. Um, and in the process greatly impoverished that, um, that other group of people. So Karen, students, I teach a lot on South Africa and they always kind of ask me a version of the same question, which is, was this slavery or was this Jim Crow? Um, because they're, they're thinking of, of the analog in the US and it's, uh, is it unfair, is it wrong to say it's not as bad as slavery before the Civil War, but it, it's, it's Jim Crow on steroids. Um, it's not, it, 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 it would have been worse to be a black South African than an African American in the South during apartheid, but it wasn't quite at the level of chattel slavery. Yeah, I mean, these are all invidious systems. Um, that are deeply, deeply damaging, uh, but I think that's I think that's basically basically right. There are a lot of analogies to Jim Crow, um, uh, but I think it was even more comprehensive than Jim Crow. And without the sort of ability to migrate somewhere else in the United States, uh, I've just been reading the. Uh, the wonderful book by Isabel Wilkinson on uh, the Great Migration. And there's a lot of analogies um, to South Africa, but uh, Black, American Blacks um, were able to leave the South. And I think that's uh, in a, one key difference, whereas Blacks in South Africa uh, couldn't do that. 
um, it couldn't, you know, if they moved to a different part of South Africa, it was still, it was all there. It was a national level uh, system, not a local level system. But again, these were all horrible, invidious, repressive systems of government. And so, so in the apartheid regime was white supremacist, um, obviously, how did it how did it become undone? I mean, in, in, in I, I sort of have two aspects to that question, which is one, you know, it kind of comes undone in the 80s and the 1990, which is like, why did it take so long? But on the other hand, it's such a miracle that it became undone. I mean, in everything you just described, it's hard to imagine then, like if that's the equilibrium, how do you undo a regime that is like the apartheid regime? So it's, it seems both a miracle that it did change, but it also seems such a tragedy that this is something we're talking about in the late 20th century, not something in the, even in the 17 or 1800s. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a miracle that it came undone as peacefully as it did. Um, you know, with the vast uh, difference in demographics, um, I think it, it was almost inevitable that it would become undone eventually. But what I always the miracle of South Africa to me is that there wasn't a civil war because it could easily have ended in a civil war that, you know, that happened in, in other similarly repressive systems. It takes a civil war to get rid of something like this. And uh, South Africa was not, uh, you know, peaceful in the sense that many people died in the process of ending the system, but it wasn't a full-fledged civil war. So why, why didn't it turn into a civil war and, and what actually happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can, you can understand the history of South Africa without understanding the role of, of um, black and African political, political movements and the, the uh, sustained deep leadership of, um, of different um, political organizations in terms of initiating protests starting in the mid 1970s and just sustaining that protest over basically a decade plus um, that uh, over that time made South Africa basically ungovernable. Um, and the economic elites and the political elites in South Africa that had benefited so long from this system began to recalculate and to say, this isn't really benefiting us too much anymore. You know, we're losing a lot of money. International actors have cut us off. We're, uh, the system which has made us quite comfortable and quite rich is, is actually starting to not work very well. And so they began to, to seek alternatives um, and to begin no negotiating. Uh, and they negotiated in secret for a long period of time. Um, with black leadership to try and uh, come up with a, you know, an end game that would preserve the state of South Africa. Um, and I don't think you can understand that process at all, again, without looking at the leadership of black organizations, not just the ANC, we all know the ANC, um, but there were a number of really important um, black organizations, uh, you know, trade unions and, little uh, local level organizations and they all, you know, aggregated up into a big, big umbrella um, protest movements. And, and the leaders of those movements um, worked very hard with uh, the 
sort of the moderate wing of the National Party to hammer out a negotiated change for South Africa. And they were the apartheid party in power. Yeah, the National Party was the apartheid power, party in power. And, and, and this was a negotiated end that took a, a very long period of time, but it, but it did happen. And I think you really have to look at the leadership of um, particularly, I think, of the of um, black political political organizations to understand when it when it all changed, how it changed, and why it it wasn't violent, more violent than it was. So Nelson Mandela was the leader of the ANC negotiating this transition with the with the National Party, as you said. Um, you know, I, I sort of remember kind of growing up with the iconic images of Nelson Mandela, you know, coming out of prison, but then you know, running and winning in their first elections in 1994. Can you talk to us about that moment of transition and how much things change from, you know, being under apartheid to now you have free and fair democratic elections? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a story of things changed and things didn't change, you know, and that's kind of the, the, the amazing thing about South Africa and also the tragedy of South Africa. There was a massive political change, right? So, um, Black South Africans had, under apartheid, had all of their political rights stripped away. As we mentioned, they couldn't vote. They were, um, you know, they couldn't form political organizations. Their ANC was illegal. Its leadership was imprisoned or exiled. And um, the clerk, uh, you know, overnight uh, after after coming to power, legalized the ANC and freed Nelson Mandela. Um, and then they began a long process of negotiation. And in 1994, there was the first uh, free and fair uh, democratic elections in South Africa and Nelson Mandela won. And suddenly you have this massive change where the people who had been out of power, not just out of power, but you know, actively repressed, took over, took over power. The ANC took over power in 1994. It has kept power that entire time. It has not lost a national election it has um, held on to almost all provincial level government and most local level government is still held by the ANC. So, uh, you know, there was just this massive change in who was in power, right? Um, but at the same time, there was really not a lot of change on the economic side. Um, and that's the, the irony of, of South Africa was, um, you know, this massive political change was not accompanied by massive redistribution. Um, and so from the perspective of the average South African voter, they got this amazing thing, the, the right to vote. And that is not something that's taken for granted in South Africa. Um, it, was a, it was a truly amazing thing to be able to vote and people would wait in lines, continue to wait in lines to, to vote. And they value that, it intrinsically value the right to vote. Um, but the, in terms of their material life, not a whole lot changed. There was some change for sure. The ANC has provided a lot of services to people. Um, they've created a, a social safety net. You know, it's not that there's zero change, but in terms of there was no socialist revolution accompanying the democratic revolution. Um, well, this gets into the topic of your book, which is the role of race in contemporary democratic politics. So. I'm guessing 1994, race didn't just suddenly all of a sudden not become relevant uh, to political life, but why and how does race matter today if apartheid has ended and there's, there's you know, equality, equal rights for everyone, even if there's economic 
inequality? Why is race still so potent in South Africa? Yeah, it's interesting. I think some people kind of optimistically hoped or expected that race would just go away when you had this election, but in, but in fact, it hasn't. Um, there is still a very deep racial imprint on voting behavior and on elections, specifically um, Black South Africans are um, very reluctant to vote for um, many of the major opposition parties. And, you know, these opposition parties have a reputation of being, uh, you know, so-called white parties because they were parties, and I'm speaking of the Democratic Alliance specifically, that have, have roots in the apartheid years. They were um, parties that were part of government during the apartheid years. And so they're seen as, uh, as white parties. And um, very, very, you know, it very rarely do black South Africans vote for them. And, and white South Africans also uh, tend to vote for the so-called white parties and they avo avoid the African National Congress, which is seen as a black party. So you have these, these block, block votes where, where whites vote for um, the DA and Africans vote for largely for the ANC or other parties like um, the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, most recently, that are also seen as black parties. So basically, your race in South Africa still strongly predicts how you will vote. This is started to starting to change a little bit. There's some really exciting black leaders within the Democratic Alliance that um, are interesting, but the 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 patterns are still quite strong. Um, and so, you know, if you know someone's race in South Africa, you can have a pretty good guess of how they're going to vote. So there's a strong correlation between their racial group and how they're voting. And, and so, you know, we can ask, why is that? You know, what, what explains that, that pattern? And, you know, we could, one argument is that it's just about identity, that people are expressing their identity when they're, when they're voting, that a, when a white voter votes for the DA, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm, I'm a part of the white group. This is a white party. I'm expressing my identity when I do this. Similarly, a black person is expressing uh, an identity, an allegiance to the ANC as a black party. That could explain that outcome. Um, in my work, I make a, a, a different argument, which is that people use race as the racial credentials of parties as sort of an informational shortcut that helps them um, make evaluations about which party is going to be most likely to protect their interests in the long run. So um, the racial credentials of the party act kind of like um, a brand name when we're buying, buying things as consumers, you know, Nike means a certain thing or McDonald's means a certain thing. And so I, I know what I'm getting when I buy that thing. And I think that thing is gonna um, look out for me in the long run better than other options um, on the ballot. Okay, so, so if I can, let me, let me see if I understand. So I'm a black South African voter <laughs> and I could go to the ballot box and cast my ballot at, for the ANC either to kind of um, pump up my chest as a black South African to say, look, you know, we didn't have political rights for all these years. Um, you know, yeah, the ANC is gonna win, but I just wanna like express my pride at being black and South African and, and ability to vote and pride at being a part of this group called the ANC. Maybe I'm also looking over at a white voter and kind of thumbing my nose at them 
and that's what it's about versus no, I'm a black voter and I'm voting for the ANC because I look at the ANC, I look at the Democratic Alliance and the ANC is gonna do better things for my group than the Democratic Alliance. It doesn't mean it's not impossible for the DA at some point maybe to be better than the ANC, but for right now, um, the ANC is gonna take care of me, my family, my community, my group more than whatever the alternative is. Is that a way to characterize it? Yes, you've done a much better job at explaining that than I did. So how is that different, Karen, than how a lot of um, social identities think about politics in the US? I mean, a lot of times we hear this about African-American voters, which vote overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. I mean, I think usually in presidential elections, it's between you know 87 and 95% of the black vote goes for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party doesn't have a racial identity as such. It's sort of seen as a, a party of coalitions. But is, is it the same thinking that, you know, a black, uh, an African-American voter would look at the Democrats and the Republicans and they would say, well, the Democrats are more likely to do things that are um, pro-African-American interests relative to the Republicans. It doesn't mean the Democrats are perfect. It just means that they're better able to um, <clears throat> target policies and programs that are more likely to help African-Americans relative to the Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very similar thing. So. Um, you know, this, this argument about South Africa is a general argument that the voters tend to look to um, informational cues, like a party label, to try to figure out what, what to do with their vote on election day. That, um, and so uh, a black voter in the US might, might say, well, the Democrats are, are sort of my best option. And, and, you know, what is the alternative? It's doing research on every single candidate and trying to figure out what they're gonna do and what their policy positions are and what they've done in the past. And, you know, basically that's a lot of work. And uh, American political scientists have said, you know, in, in the context where there's a lot of uncertainty or it's difficult to figure things out, people fall back on these shortcuts. And it's, they're not just, it's not just about race either. In, in the US, we use partisan shortcuts all the time. So if I'm voting in a California referendum these things are really complicated and long. And sometimes it's just easiest to say, well, what did the Democrats, what are the Democrats or what are the Republicans say to do here? And I'm just gonna follow the cue. Um, and so it's just, it's, a, it's an argument borrowed actually from American politics and applied in a new context. So Karen, here is the dilemma, which is, let's say I agree with everything you just said and I, and I, and I believe you. You also said, though, that, you know, the ANC has not been perfect. It hasn't really done a lot on, particularly on economic redistribution. Mm -hmm. And they took power in 1994. It's now 2021. What, even if you're a Black voter, and even if you support the ANC, and even if you sort of like understand the history of apartheid, but the party isn't doing what it should be doing. It's not performing on the economy. Obviously, we know crime is a huge issue in South Africa. You know, previous presidents like Jacob Zuma, a lot of corruption scandals. Why doesn't a voter just say, you know what? I'm gonna gamble on the DA because let's just try something new. Because they like, until you shake it up, you're not, you shouldn't expect a different outcome, right? So why don't voters think about those other issues about how well the agency has been performing and then potentially defect from the ANC if they don't view it as having performed very well? Yeah, I think that that's the million dollar question. Um, and, you know, I think we have some 
some answers on that. I think one of the one of the things that's really hard to know is, you know, how how do you evaluate performance? How do you know whether the ANC ANC's done a good job or not? Sure, they haven't delivered everything that we would, you know, that a person might hope that they could deliver, but would a different party have done better? Can you rerun history and say um, that with the odds stacked against them, a different party would have done a better job? Would the DA have done a better job? You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in figuring out performance, um, evaluating performance, and then um, knowing what the other party would have done. So there, there are those issues, but I think there's also the sense that, yeah, maybe the DA would would be a very competent party in power and they would do good things overall for the economy. But the central issue is one of distribution. And, you know, as, as the pie is growing, who is getting the benefit of that? Um, and so the deep skepticism that remains, I think, and why these, why these, um, these old party labels and these racialized party labels still continue to matter is it's, it's very hard to dispel the, the distrust or the belief that the, the DA as a white party would basically favor white people in, in, in the distribution of gains. If, if they did maybe a better job growing the economy, who knows, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, but um, that those gains would go disproportionately to the white constituency. And so, you know, the devil you know maybe is better than the devil you don't know, especially when the devil you don't know, well, you do know a lot about that devil from apartheid and um, the, the deep skepticism that they're really going to change their ways and redistribute to a different constituency. Karen, what I'm hearing you phrase much better than I ever do in a classroom is, is something that I think is very hard to get across to um, undergraduates, which is that when it comes to explaining voting behavior, it's all about what's the counterfactual, right? There's no like perfect world where there's an angel who comes down and solves COVID right away, right? Like you either vote for the Republicans because you think they've done well on COVID or not, or you vote for the Democrats because you think the Republicans have done well or not, and you vote for whoever you think will do better, but you only have two choices. There's no like perfect counterfactual of some party that's gonna do the perfect thing that you want always. And I think that's just hard for people. It's an obvious point, but I think it's hard for people to internalize maybe until they get a bit older. And that's part of the reason why you still see some of the, you know, people still vote for the Democrats, even if they don't necessarily like everything about them. Um, they only have one alternative. And so if they like, even if they like the Democrats just a little bit more, that's who they're going to vote for. Yeah. And even if you have more than one alternative, it's still a finite set of alternatives, right? You know, there's, there's more, multiple parties in South Africa. Um, but you still might say, well, you know, the, the ANC is still probably my best bet. They're not perfect, but, you know, I think my, my lot in life is going to be a little bit better with them. Um, and that reflects the entire, you know, the entire history of, of people's experiences. Um, so you pick up on this kind of, um, difficulty in, you know, for a voter thinking about, you know, both race and ethnicity and parties that are going to take care of a group versus sort of thinking about um, how well the government has done in terms of performance and the, the sort of tension in that. Um, you, you take this up in a paper that was just published this week in the journal World Development, which is called Mixed Records, Complexity and Ethnic Voting in African Elections, 
where you and your co-authors, who I should say include me, <laughs> as well as Clark Gibson, your colleague uh, in the political science department at UCSD, also one of my uh, mentors. Um, and you and your co-authors talk about this tension between the impulse to vote ethnically versus the impu impulse to vote uh, based on government performance. Could you kind of talk about how you make this issue really, really complex, how you make this very complex issue um, a subject of research in this new paper and then what conclusions you're able to draw from it? Yeah, so um, I really like this paper. It, you know, as you know, we worked on it for a really long time. Um, yeah, and I think it, there were two things that drove, intuitions that drove this paper. The first was this sort of bafflement over these two competing narratives about um, African elections. And the, and the first is, is the sort of undeniable correlation between ethnicity and how people vote in many elections, um, as we've been talking about with South Africa, that, that um, ethnic identity or racial identity seems to matter a lot in how people vote. People prefer to vote for co-ethnics. And yet at the same time, we have abundant data and experience that African voters care very deeply about the performance of their governments and hold them accountable for that or, or seek to hold them accountable for it. African elections are full of narratives about performance and you know, what did you do for me lately? What have you built for me? What have you delivered? What have, you know, are there new roads? How are they? What are the schools doing? And you know, we, we as Africanists, we know that um, the people we talk to in Africa, our friends and colleagues in Africa, the survey data in Africa, election coverage in Africa, that performance matters a lot. So how do you, how do you kind of square these, these two things where people seem to be driven by these identity politics, but at the same time to care about performance? And so that was one of the things that drove this paper. And then, and then the other thing that drove this paper was our very personal experience of voting in American elections where sometimes we're looking at performance records and they're not, it's not clear whether the incumbent did a good job or didn't do a good job. They, they have these, what we call mixed records where they do well on some things and they do poorly on other things. And, and we actually think that's the modal outcome around the world is that incumbents are barely all good or all bad. They're kind of in this muddly middle um, and uh, what do you do as a voter when you're faced with this mixed record? Um, do, you, do, you, do you see it as the glass is half full or do you see it as the glass is half empty? How do you hold a politician accountable when they've kind of delivered this mixed bag? And so bringing these two threads together, we argue that um, ethnic voting in Africa is, is not a disposition, you know, that people are just inherently ethnic voters um, or inherently performance voters, but that um, certain contexts bring out the ethnic voter in people um, in Africa and, and anywhere. You know, this isn't an argument specific to Africa, even though we explore it in Africa, but that when it is difficult to evaluate performance, um, that voters shift to these heuristics. This, this is called fast thinking by, by um, cognitive uh, scientists um, and that that they rely on ethnic shortcuts in that context. So, and, and when does performance hard to evaluate? It's hard to, hard to evaluate when you have these mixed records. Um, and so ironically, when performance is a, is a mixed bag and voters struggle to deal with it, that's when the ethnic voter comes out. Um, 
And so that's, what the, uh, that's the argument that we're making that mixed records, which again are very common, are difficult to evaluate. And when people face these sort of difficult to evaluate tasks, they shift to using cues, informational cues. And in, in the African context, that's often the ethnic identity of candidates. So, so help you understand the, the paper we wrote <laughs> to, to, to summarize it then. So I'm a Kenyan voter and I'm looking at the, and let's say an incumbent president is running for re-election or incumbent government or coalition. And I say, okay, zero to a hundred, hundred being perfect job in office, zero being worst. Uh, you know, the economy, maybe 50 to 60, new roads, 80, uh, healthcare, well, that's like a 20. So it really is meant like, yeah, they've done well on a couple things maybe, but they haven't been perfect. So it's kind of hard, like if you just gave me a pure thumbs up and thumbs down to say, yeah, I would endorse this person for reelection. Um, so if it's mixed and I'm kind of having a hard time deciding if they happen to be my co-ethnic, then I can say, oh, well, that's gonna resolve it for me. Even though it's mixed and it's not perfect, if they are the same, if they come from the same ethnicity as I do, I'll let that sort of drive my, you know, tipping the scale one way or the other. Um, if I'm not a co-ethnic, then that may not help. Um, and if the person did perfectly in office or they did horribly in office, then it would be an easy decision. So it's that sort of ethnicity creeping in once I'm trying to resolve how to think about an incumbent who really hasn't been perfect, but hasn't been awful. Exactly. You know, when the, when the incumbent has been perfect, it's an easy decision to make. Yeah. You don't need to look at their ethnicity. If, they've, if they're hitting the ball out of the park on everything, most people are gonna be like, yeah, keep that incumbent in office. You know, you go, girl. Stay, you know, keep going, doing what you're doing, right? And it, and similarly, if they're just dismal, if they're just horrible, you don't need to know their ethnicity. You know, they're just get them out. Um, and I think African voters are have shown us that. Um, but there's this whole middle wishy-washy zone of like, well, you know, these things are good, these things are bad. How do I? You know, then I have to weight these different dimensions against each other and, you know, figure out, is it thumbs up or thumbs down? Because a vote is thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, and when you're in that gray zone, the ethnicity becomes sort of a tiebreaker. Yeah, and Karen, you know what's so interesting is I kind of think the, the, to me, the most interesting part of this paper is just simply the recognition that pretty much every politician has a mixed record. Yeah. Um, like I, as we were finishing this paper and trying to get it published, I read Obama's biography, which came out in, I think, November or December. And even if you read Obama writing about himself, he's like, yeah, I had a mixed record. Like, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. He, pro he probably wasn't totally honest or he obviously has this perception of how he did and it's not gonna be completely honest. But even there where a person has an incentive to be like, yeah, I was a saint, I did all these great things. Look at how awful things are since I left. He's even like, yeah, you know what? We should have added more to the, the stimulus package in 2009. And yeah, you know, Larry Summers is a little bit rough around the edges and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you know, this could have been better and the Affordable Care Act could have been gone differently. And that's just, it's like a weird thing to say, but it's, it's true. And it's just interesting that our field hasn't kind of integrated that insight enough into what we do and how we think it shapes voters' decisions. Yeah, I mean, so the paper that we wrote on Kenya, we, we did the field work in 2013. And the 2012 election was that 
second election of Obama. And that was, that was really, for me anyway, struggling with that election of thinking, I don't know, you know, like, did he do a good job? Did he not do it? What's, what's the proper benchmark for evaluating this? Um, and it was hard. Um, and, the, and I think partisan identity in that election in, in the US became like, you know, the, the cue that people used to sort of make an evaluation there. Um, yeah, because so even Karen wrote into our and ended up, you know, in the experiment that we designed for Kenya was at least for me anyway, I don't know about you, but for me anyway, that was a huge uh, insight or inspiration for the for the Kenyan paper. Right, Karen, you're right. I mean, I think a, a lot of American voters probably forget this because we've we've sort of gone very much perhaps in the tribal direction. But in 2012, even Democrats were a little bit unsure about Obama. I mean, they loved him personally. They loved his biography. They loved him in 2008. But after four years, a lot of things had not vested yet. Like he hadn't, you know, it, people were uncertain. And he, you know, he got fewer votes. Uh, you know, he got fewer percentage, uh, percentage margin in 2012 than he did in 2008. And we were we were all fairly naive in, in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about methods a little bit, and we can totally dork out uh, about this. So Karen, you're kind of at the forefront, I would say, of of trying to, you know, it's you know, all of this research is based on very sophisticated methodology that you employ when you work in South Africa and Kenya. Can you talk a little bit about, you know? How do you know a voter is tribal? How do you know a voter is voting because of race or whatever? Are you asking them on surveys? Are they lying? How exactly do you conduct this kind of research? Well, there's two different kinds of data that, that we use. Sometimes we use what's known as aggregate data where we can get, you know, so, so one of the fundamental difficulties of studying voting, right, is that you can't see how people vote. Obviously, that would be a horrible violation of ballot secrecy, which I'm sure you've talked about in some other episodes. So we, we never know what happens in the ballot box. We don't know how individual voters vote. We can never know that. We can never see it. Um, and we don't know why they voted, because we're not inside their head. We don't know why they made the decisions that they did. So we have a bunch of imperfect ways of drawing inferences about these issues. And so one is to just use aggregate data so I can get the demographic breakdown, sort of the ethnic breakdown and the racial breakdown of a, of a voting district, like a precinct or something like that. I can get census data, I can get the voting data, the outcome data, and I can look at correlations, you know, to places that are, um, have a higher percentage of uh, Black Americans vote a different way than places that have a low percentage. But that obviously has some problems. They're called ecological inference problems, right? Where you could end up with a spurious correlation that isn't really telling us what individuals are doing. So often we rely on a different type of data, which is survey data. And uh, in surveys, we're asking people how they voted, which of course brings its own set of of complications because people don't always tell you the truth. They don't always remember. Um, but, you know, like I said, imperfect, imperfect methods. So I have largely, um, along with you, we've done a lot of this work together, um, been studying this through large surveys. And I think the, the innovation that, that, we've, that we've done, um, that, I'm, that I'm very proud of and I think is, is great is 
to not just do it with uh, surveys, there's lots of surveys, but to do it through exit polls, which is to ask people right after they voted as they're leaving the polling station to, to tell us how they voted. Um, and of course, people can still lie. Exit polls are, not, are definitely not perfect. We can't confirm what they've done. We're relying on them to tell us the truth or sometimes to not tell us anything at all. Of course, they don't have to answer our questions. Um, but at least it's right after they voted, there's no recall problem. They're not gonna forget it. We're only talking to voters. The, the election is extremely salient as they're exiting. Um, and so uh, a lot of our work has, has, has been based on these giant exit polls, um, you know, uh, and these are randomly sampled through probability sampling uh, so that we're, we're taking a random sample of polling stations around, around the country and then randomly sampling voters leaving them. I think that for the Kenyan study that, you, that we've been talking about, we had over 6,000 voters we talked to during the 2013 Kenyan election. Um, and so, you know, one way of studying the, the role of identity and performance evaluations is to just ask people, ask people as they're leaving, you know, how did you vote? Then we can look at correlations between identity and voting. And we can also ask them, you know, why, you know, to give us their evaluation of performance, to tell us why they voted the way they did. Um, and to, you know, to try to get at some of these issues that way. Um, of course, there's still remaining issues with that. And, and people might, um, you know, if we straight up ask somebody, did you vote tribally? Or did you vote ethnically? Um, they may not uh, want to answer that in a, in a straightforward fashion. They may not be completely straightforward about that. Because often there's, there's a um, social, what we call social desirability bias. It, it's seen as a bad thing to, to vote ethnically, or it's seen as a bad thing to vote tribally. So people may not always reveal those intentions. People are more likely to say they voted on the basis of policy, or they voted on the basis of performance, because those are seen as more normatively sort of okay ways to vote. Um, and so to get around some of that, we use little experiments that we embed in surveys to to uh, make it a little bit less clear what we're, what we're after or what we're doing um, and to try not to prime race or ethnicity as strongly in those, in those treatments. Um, and that, that helps us kind of uncover what is otherwise more difficult to see. So Karen, I thought I would end by asking you kind of um, a big picture question, which is, I guess it's a version of a so what. So what does it mean for democracy, whether we're talking about Kenya or South Africa or the United States, if ethnicity or race or partisanship um, or if tribal voting drives political outcomes? Is that a bad thing? Like can a democracy survive that? Um, and in a country like South Africa, do you, do you envision that there won't be any real reforms until there's the sort of decoupling of race from partisanship? Yeah, I think those are really good questions. Um, is ethnicity necessarily a terrible thing in politics? I think we often kind of are very doomsday-ish about it and we're driven by these you know, catastrophic examples of, of you know, ethnic politics going deeply deeply off the rails in Yugoslavia or in Rwanda or, or so on. But 
the reality is like ethnic politics coexists with democracy in a lot of places and people learn to live with divisions and learn to, to uh, you know, de democracy may be one way of helping them um, get along and, and work through um, some of these, some of these issues. So I don't think that, you know, we should necessarily assume all doom and gloom simply because ethnicity has been politicized in a place or ethnicity plays a role in politics. That said, there are some, there are some downsides to it or there's some, you know, some, some challenges for democracy where ethnicity is very politicized and people are voting strongly based on, on ethnicity or race. Um, I think the big issue that we, that we worry about is democratic accountability. And if people are very sort of strongly only willing to consider um, co-ethnics when they vote, that may give those co-ethnics a little too much slack, right? To, 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 um, to not deliver good performance. Um, that's, the, that's the main argument. Um, I think I would even, you know, I would point out in the case of South Africa that it may not matter ultimately all that much if voters don't ever break the racial census in South Africa. If new parties arrive, new black parties arrive that challenge the ANC, you know, the old white parties can sort of ride off into the oblivion. And, and, and there's other ways, I guess there's other ways of getting to accountability is what I'm saying. And it, it doesn't always have to be about cross-racial or cross-ethnic voting. So um, I'm not as much of a pessimist about the ability of salient ethnicity to coexist with democracy as, as um, some people might be. Well, Karen, one version of a question that we've gotten from a lot of listeners is given the, um, the polarization and the radicalization between Democrats and Republicans, I mean, on the side of Republicans mostly, but between the two of them, are there lessons from South Africa in the transition from apartheid about how these two different tribes, these two different groups of people can come back and live together in a democratic society? Yeah. I mean, I know that's a big question, but we've gotten a lot of a version of that question. I think it's also something that people are kind of asking in, in, in today in the U.S. It's like, what does the truth and justice reconciliation process look like now? Yeah, million dollar question. Um, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and I want to go listen to your podcast with Gabrielle Lynch about that. Um, I've been reading about that myself, uh, trying to figure out if there, are, if there are lessons there and, you know, how successful was the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa? Does the truth set you free? Does it, um, does it mend these things? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of an, an open question, but one we should be exploring. I think there are other, I don't want to call them solutions, but other, other paths to explore also um, you know, how do we encourage the development of umbrella identities or overriding identities that, you know, maybe we have these strong identifications to these tribes, these partisan tribes, but, you know, we're all Americans. How do we get back to thinking like that? How do we emphasize the American identity um, or the human being identity or um, the good citizen identity or, you know, there's different there are also identities that 
bind us. There are identities that bridge these differences and maybe in, our, in addition to a truth and re reconciliation process or something that we, that we work on building some of these bridging identities. Um, that's that's another, another thing that, that I've been thinking uh, a lot about. Um, I think also uh, working on, you know, there's a contact theory in political science or social science that says as people get to know each other better, have more contact with each other, um, they can uh, sometimes uh, narrow the distance between them. And so I, I worry a lot about the geographic segregation of communities in the US and the informational segregation of communities in the US. And if we have more contact with um, across the political divide, uh, perhaps that can help too. So I think there's a, there's a, a rich, rich literature about you know, potential solutions to this out there. Well, great. I think that's a great place to end. Karen Faree, thank you. Professor Faree, I should say. Um, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. It was great. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.